The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, July 13th, the Do What You Can edition. I'm Gabriel Roth, an editor at Slate and the dad of Eliza, Six, and Leo, who woke us up this morning and asked us, is I three now? You are three now. Happy birthday, dude. (laughs) I'm Rebecca Lavoie. I'm a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire. I am the mom of Henry, who is almost 16, Teddy, who is 14, and I have a stepdaughter, Lily, who is 17. And I am Carvel Wallace, a freelance writer out in Oakland, California, and I am the father of Georgia, who is 11, and Ezra, who is 14. This week, we have a special guest, Rabia Chowdhury, who will be talking with us about raising Muslim kids in America in 2017. And we have a call from a listener whose daughter has a troublesome friend in Slate Plus, We'll be getting an update from Rebecca on her own domestic soap opera. But first, <laughs> we've got triumphs and fails. Carvel, how's it going? Uh, oh, man, this is, a, this is a week. This is a thing that I, I talk about a lot, which is the incredibly difficult balance of being someone who works a lot and also has kids. And uh, this week was a little bit of a fail. Uh, My kid's mom is out of town right now. She and I actually literally passed each other in the airport in San Francisco. Um, The same day she was going to New York, I was coming back from New York. We stopped and had a cup of coffee and made small talk about the kids. Uh, The kids were at at home waiting for a parent to return. Uh, And then I came home yesterday. Uh, I got home. My flight arrived at like 1035. I got to the house like something around noon because there was traffic and Uber and I had to get my cars, a whole whole bunch of stuff. And I was exhausted because my flight out of New York, I essentially had to get up on what is a West Coast 2 a.m. is when I had to get out of bed. And, you know, I had been there on a work trip. And so I had to go interview a subject like crack of dawn anyway the day before. So I was wiped. So I worked in the plane, did my stuff, took a little bit of a nap on the plane, got home and just wasn't really trying to do anything. But the kids wanted to hang out. They, they we because Oakland is getting crazy crowded This regular day camp they usually go to, they're not in. We actually missed the sign-up window. So the kids are just lolling around the house and being really difficult, which is fine, whatever. So I got there. They wanted to go to the pool. Fine, let's go to the pool. We go to the pool. We swim. It's beautiful. Then the evening comes, and I've had enough. I make spaghetti and meatballs at the request of my son. That takes forever because I make them from scratch. It's a whole thing. And then... And then we get to bedtime, and my daughter has nighttime anxiety that comes and goes. But this time, it we it was already 11, and I was literally couldn't keep my eyes open because I'd been up since 2 a.m. And she wanted me to to stay in her room until she fell asleep, and I told her I couldn't. It's just it's just too like I can't. I have to get up early tomorrow morning, and I made a decision not to do it. And I said, you know, I know that it's difficult for you. I I'm gonna leave my door open. You leave your door open. We'll keep the lights on, but you at some point you have to. You can't have a parent put you to sleep every night. You're 11 years old, and I don't know if it's a triumph or a fail. Actually, it's definitely not a triumph. I don't know if it's a fail. Because she was upset by that. And she cried. And eventually, I think her brother actually hung out back, made small talk with her for a little while, which actually I think is good because it's good for him to be helpful because he's not that helpful, actually. But I woke up this morning feeling a little bit of a something in the pit of my stomach. Like, am I going to regret not taking whatever, that extra half an hour? Or, But at the moment, it seemed overwhelming. I could not give another thing. But I woke up this morning and felt like, should I have given another thing? 
could I have? Is the feeling of not having done that worse than whatever fatigue I was afraid of? And I don't know the answer to that question, but I just want to say parenting is really hard. I don't think there's an answer to that question, or I think the answer to that question is you gave everything you could. You didn't have any more. So there's no other world where you made a different decision, right? That's not a decision. You do as much as you can do. No, I I agree. And I think that like this is not one of those situations where you know Georgia's gonna be like twenty-eight years old remembering that time that she, you know, needed you to sit with her when she was eleven years old to go to bed and you had just gotten off of a overnight flight and you couldn't. Like th- I don't think there was any harm done here except maybe setting that that boundary where you just didn't have any more to give. And that's okay. That's okay. I mean, it has to be okay because we don't have any choice. Yeah, we don't. I mean, that's that's the thing. It's like, I know it's okay. It's not like a question of like, did I make a bad, harmful parenting decision? It's like, the question is, like, sometimes as a parent, I don't know what is the most important thing. And like, I know it's really important to connect with my daughter and to spend time with her. And like, and I also know it's really important that uh, that I get enough sleep and that I operate my life in a way that remotely works. And there are times in which the two things are in direct um, conflict with one another. And any decision I make, part of being a parent means that any decision that I make is both justifiable and also up for review later. You know, but I, I, I do know that Whenever I make a decision not to connect or bond with my kids because of an external factor, justified or unjustified, whenever that happens, I feel that the next day. I question that. I because there's this there's this sense that I'm starting to have because they're growing so fast and they're moving so quickly out of their childhoods that is it gonna be that that's the main thing that I wish I had done more of, you know? Like Am I going to regret not having gone into her room more, like, not even for her, but for me? Like, was that, like, 45 minutes of sleep more important? And I actually don't know the answer to that question. And the separate thing about her boundaries, that's another issue, which is also a factor. And that's something that we get to work on in another way. But, like, to me, this, I, I made a decision that was felt like the best at the time, but I woke up this morning questioning it. And that, if that's not parenting, man, I don't yeah. know what the fuck it is. <laughs> you know? <sighs> yep. Rebecca, what about you? How was your week? It was pretty good. I've got an interesting triumph to report. A couple of weeks ago, I think I've mentioned on the show before that I have tried to become more interested in my son's uh, computer and video gaming life and really acknowledge that it's actually part of his life just because I don't understand it or I may think like, oh, you spent how many hours today, you know, playing a game? (laughs) Um, That it actually is like an important part of his life and that there's a community there. And he's actually been sharing with me ever since we started this conversation kind of like what that life looks like. You know, he plays this game, uh, Realm of the Mad God. That's like his big game right now. He's in a guild (laughs) with 50 people around the country. Um, He, his guild, is like one of the top guilds in the server that they're on, which is called US East 3. The name of his guild is uh, Beach Zone. And he is, you know, a leader in the guild. There are these like three founders and five leaders. So he at 14 is kind of helping manage a community of of 50 people that includes things like, um, you know, rewarding people or maybe give telling people that their behavior isn't right or, or in just sort of helping people manage and solve problems in the game and, you know, helping parse out resources. And I've been making a practice now of, you know, especially now that it's summer, he's in camp next week. He was away last week, but this week, 
he's home during the day and I'm you know coming and going from work and I know he's spending a lot of time on this game and I've tried to make a practice every night at dinner of instead of kind of giving him crap about spending hours you know being on the computer playing this game asking him about it saying what happened in the game today and the conversation has been incredible. He's been opening way up, telling me about the people that he communicates with, about, you know, the achievements that uh, some person who he's never even met, you know, somebody got their six of eights for their sorcerer today. And it was really exciting. And we were all celebrating. And I, you know, I think acknowledging for me that this is a part of his life. It's not an activity for him. It's actually a community and something that he's doing. It's really helped shape the conversation around it. Um, you know, I certainly, as the school year is approaching, need to, again, look for ways to help manage it and, you know, not uh, uh, have him be doing this all the time, because, of course, he also doesn't do his homework. But I think opening that conversation up, asking more questions about it has been a real triumph for our family, especially at dinnertime conversation. That's great. Uh, I'm going to award myself a triumph because as of today, I no longer have any children under three. Uh, and they're both alive. Um, the, the aging serum exactly. is working. Whatever, whatever it is that we've been doing, however we've been messing up, and there are plenty of ways, um, they are still alive. And I got one of them to six and a half and I got one of them to three. And if we can just keep this up for another like 15 years, then we're good. Um, so I'm, I'm going to award myself a sort of general triumph. Uh, and he's a great kid. I love him. He's so good. Um, so uh, happy birthday, Leo. My present is a triumph. Aw, that was so sentimental and sweet. Aw, happy birthday, Leo. All right, a couple bits of business. If you like our show, you should know about another great podcast from Slate called Lexicon Valley. It's hosted by John McWhorter. It explores the world of language from grammar peeves to neurolinguistics to the life cycles of languages. Check out the recent episode, The Incredible Lightness of Being, about the crazy verb to be. Here is something I learned from that episode. In English, we use forms of to be all the time, but 40% of languages have no equivalent. If you are the kind of word nerd who likes the idea of listening to half an hour on the verb to be, and I know I certainly am, check out Lexicon Valley at slate.com slash Lexicon Valley on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also in Slate Plus this week, we're going to be hearing the latest behind the scenes update about Rebecca's family and their romantic lives. If you want to hear that segment, if you want to get caught up, uh, but you're not a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash app, download the Slate app and try Slate Plus for free for 90 days. You'll get bonus segments from this and your other favorite Slate shows. You'll get ad free podcasts and a whole lot more. And uh, Rebecca has a request, too. I do. If you are a fan of Mom and Dad are Fighting, whether or not you have kids, I've actually heard that we have some fans who don't even have kids but just like the podcast. So thanks, guys. Which is not creepy. <laughs> not at all. creepy at all. I promise. Don't worry about it. <laughs> if it's you fine, are a guys. fan of the show, if you love Gabe or love to hate Gabe or love Carvel or love to hate Carvel or love to hate me or love me, please leave a review for this podcast on iTunes. If you're listening on your iPhone right now, open that podcast app. Go to this podcast. Rate the podcast. Give it you know four or five stars. However you're feeling about it. I would say and five. Write- 
Give, give it five stars. <laughs> yeah, let's aim high. Let's aim high. Uh, give it the, the biggest review that you're comfortable giving it and um, leave a written review because that really does help keep the podcast where people can find it. Helps us with SEO and search and people who are looking for parenting podcasts are more likely to find this one when we get more of those reviews and ratings. So love the show. Please, please, please rate it. We really appreciate it. Great. I don't think it's a stretch to say that it's a difficult time to be Muslim in America. And our guest this week knows a whole lot about that and has a whole lot to say about it. If you're a fan of podcasts, you may know Rabia Chaudhry from the podcast Serial. She is the person who brought Adnan Syed's case to Sarah Koenig. You might also know that she anchors the Undisclosed podcast. That's the show on which she and some other lawyers actually uncovered evidence that helped win Adnan Syed a new trial. Rabia is also an attorney. She's a best-selling author. She's a sought-after speaker. She's held fellowships uh, at the U.S. Institute of Peace and the New America Foundation on the intersection of religion and violence and the use of social media to empower Muslim communities. But beyond Rabia's podcast and social activism, first and foremost, she is an amazing mom. To me, she's also an amazing friend uh, who I really look up to, and I really want to welcome her to Mom and Dad Are Fighting. Rabia, thank you so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, Rebecca, thanks so much for having me, all of you. And that was like, I, I have never felt so warm and fuzzy after introduction. That's awesome. <laughs> um, well, just so that everyone else in the panel and our audience can just learn a little more about you. Can you tell us about your family? How old are your kids? What are their names? Yeah, so um, I have been uh, involved in this really interesting practice where I have one child every decade. Um, so I have a 20-year-old <laughs> daughter whose name is Sana uh, from my first marriage. Then I got divorced. I was a single mom for a bit. I got remarried. Then I have an eight-year-old. Her name is Hanifa. So two girls, two very, very different girls, uh, but they act like, and they're very far apart in age, but they act like they're like both teenagers. Um, and then I have a four-and-a-half-month-old baby. Um, so between college and poopy diapers, um, I'm kind of handling it all. And his name is Yasin, by the way. Most beautiful baby I've ever seen, I think, honestly. And, and He'd be <laughs> pretty cute. Now, you actually, when we met for the first time in person, even though we've known each other for a couple of years, uh, that's when you told me that you were pregnant. And we're the same age. And, you know, that was a whole conversation in and of itself about, you know, <laughs> how I was just like, how are you doing this? The horror, but yeah. That, exactly. That was in November. That was sort of um, you know, right after the election, but before the inauguration, we had just been through these months and months of months of really insane rhetoric about immigration immigration and Muslims in America. And that was really when I saw firsthand and, and really started paying attention to things you were saying online about what it's like being a parent of Muslim kids. Mm. So um, you then had your baby like in what, March, yep. right after uh, Trump took office and all this anti-immigration stuff was going on. How did you talk about that with your older kids uh, at that point? You know, so my 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 oldest daughter, who's um, twenty, you know, she has kind of been raised in the shadow of nine eleven, right? She was very young when nine eleven took place, but she has since the time I think she kind of understood what was going on, um, has been hearing these things, has been watching me work on these issues and talk about these issues and listening to me and my friends, you know, try to strategize around these issues. So I think you know she is. Pretty well, and she's pretty active um, at, in college, um, in student government, and all these things. She's pretty informed, 
And so she, talking to her has not been so difficult. She gets it. She understands that we, as American citizens, like our job is to try to make this country better. And we do that by resisting when things are bad. And um, and, and so she, she understands activism and advocacy and how we have the power to make the changes. The hard uh, conversations are with the eight-year-old, who is not old enough to understand these things and who all through the election, through the campaign, a campaign that like would never end, lasted forever. Um, kept watching, you know, the issue of an Islam and Muslims come up in the debates. Um, and, uh, you know, her question always would be, <laughs> whenever she would see any, any of the candidates, whether it was a GOP debates um, or the Democratic, does that person like Muslims or does that person not like Muslims? Like that is her whole kind of framework around these things. Is this person like Muslims or not like Muslims? Um, that's the, as much as she understands. And what I try to tell her is that it doesn't matter if they like or don't like that we get new presidents every few years. And even if this one doesn't like Muslims, we'll get one that does. It'll be okay. So what's her experience been like in school? I'm, I'm curious because I, I think that you've mentioned this a couple of times online, uh, you know, after things happen in the news um, that she goes. I mean, ha- has she had any experiences at school that have made her ask more questions? No, look, here's the thing. And I, I took in a way the cowardly route out when I, I grew up in public education um, and I grew up in a lot of small towns, you know, across America. My dad worked for the Department of Agriculture. So we were always in these agricultural chicken farming areas. Um, and you know what? It it was great. It was a really nice childhood, um, small town. And there wasn't, I didn't ever feel, with a few exceptions, like, you know, excluded, marginalized, racist, uh, stuff. I mean, it, it, none of this really got intense until after 9-11. So when that happened after 9-11, I decided that I would put my kids in an Islamic school because I didn't want them to face um, in public education, what I knew other kids were facing, um, because that wasn't the way I experienced America and I didn't want them that to be their experience. So they've all, both my daughters have gone to private Islamic schools. My older daughter's graduated from that. She's at university now. The younger one goes to, you know, she's in third grade. Um, so she doesn't experience like bullying or negativity or, you know, question challenges to her, her identity or faith, uh, in a school context at all. When your older daughter left her her Muslim high school, did she find that there was some culture shock from going out of that sort of environment um, and into a into a college that I assume is not a, an exclusively Muslim college? No, not really. Not because you know I my our so you know school is one thing you know, but at home we we don't have an exclusively. <laughs> Like Muslims only environment. I have, you know, friends of every faith. My best friends from childhood to college, they're of all different faiths. Um, My daughters have gone to worship services at every kind of denomination you can think of Hindu, Jewish. Uh, I'm very involved with Jewish American relations, Jewish Muslim relations. Uh, We, you know, they're exposed to everything and every kind of person out, um, outside of school. I'm, I'm able to give them that because that's my life. That's how I am. And so they, she didn't experience any culture shock. Um, and many universities now, especially since 9-11, have much more active like student associations that are like Muslim associations or they'll work with other coalitions on, on like these kinds of issues. So she's been fine. I have a question about fear. And uh, I, one of the things that has struck me about this uh, last year or so is um, the extent to which um, a new kind of fear seems to be present for all kinds of people. I think that fear manifests different ways on different sides. I know that my kids, you know, the night after the night of the election and the morning of, there were questions, there were existential questions like, 
it like is what's going to happen with us are we going to be safe is this country going to like are people going to try and kill us our race is going to like these are things that were brought up like is donald trump going to be a dictator like you know kind of thing and so i my ki- yeah my kids are 14 and 11 and uh they're biracial kids black and white who live in oakland california and uh and um you know t- to me like it, I thought that was, you know, my son has like a way of dealing with that, that I think his existential fear, he's able to smooth it out and do things with it. My daughter's, I think, creeps up. In fact, we were just talking about this. It creeps up at night for her. She has uh, extended anxiety around bedtime. And uh, my father's Muslim and uh, uh, a lot of my friends are. And one of the things that the conversations that I've been hearing a lot is this kind of like, like um like like panic terror like what the, what if the worst case scenario happens and i wonder how you it i thought it was interesting hearing you say that your answer to your daughter was well we're going to have another president in 4 years and uh, and i wondered if that something that you um i wondered the extent to which that fear plays out in you in your quiet moments and do you f- see that in your kids and how do you address that? You know, I mean, like when I say to my daughter that we'll have another president in four years, I'm not saying that um, completely unaware that it's not so much the president, but it's what he's unleashed. That is a danger to people mm. who already feel vulnerable. Mm. Um, I recognize that, but I also do believe that signals coming from up a- upon high make a big difference. And so um, I say that to her cause she's eight and I want her to know that, you know, it, it will be okay. And I, and I do believe that. And I mostly believe that because, um, I do think that America has the tools to course correct. Look, my, my parents, like my history is different than the history of a lot of American Muslims, especially black Muslims who have maybe been here for generations who did not come here willingly. Um, my history is different. Some of my parents chose to come to this country. I know the difference between what it's like, like the, 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 the structures, the institutional structures in Pakistan, which is where my family's from, versus here, the democratic tools we have here. I do believe in course correction, but I also believe that we don't have a choice. I have no choice mm. but to stay, uh, work hard, and do our best for my kids. I'm not going to drag them across the world to a country they know nothing about and a culture they know is completely alien to them. So, you know, I find hope in the fact that we have, and and it's not just us. I mean, you know, one thing Rebecca said, I thought kind of struck me and I'm, but I was really happy to hear it in the introduction where she said that after the elections, she started paying attention to things I was saying online because the canaries in the coal mine have been chirping for a long time on these issues, but right. Well, they have, this is not like suddenly out of nowhere, all these people burst out of the scene. This has been a slow, long boil on anti-immigrant, uh, anti-Muslim, even anti-Semitic. Uh, I mean, like all these things have been a long, uh, long, slow boil for many years and they're kind of exploding now. And I'm glad that people are paying attention and um, validating our very long held um, concerns. I don't think about it as fear. I think about it as concerns. Um, look, not uh, just a few weeks ago at the end of Ramadan, um, right before, a couple days before our big holiday, a 17-year-old girl here in, in this area um, was brutally murdered as she was walking back and forth from the mosque. Um, and at that point, for a very brief time, I thought about telling my daughter, because she wears a scarf, but totally on her own. Like, I never told her to. I said, you can do whatever you want. Um, and I and I was like, I should tell her not to do it. Like, you know, I should like forbid her from wearing it. Um mm. And then I said, that's just wrong. I don't want to instill that fear in her. And, you know, 
you, you, terrible things happen to young women all the time. You know, I mean, like it's, it's not going to make a difference whether she's wearing, you know, they happen to women who are wearing mini skirts and they happen to women who are wearing scarves. I, it makes me think of um, the conversations that we've had in, in the wake of the police shootings over the past several years about right. the way black parents uh, often talk to their children to, to sort of warn them about how to behave in encounters with the police. Um, and I wonder if you've had conversations with your children about how to behave when in, encountering people who are scared of them because of their race or religion. Well, look, I will say this. I have given my daughter, my older daughter, you know, like I said, she got a car, she drives around. I have given her um, pepper spray <laughs> to keep in her car. Um, and she knows to be respectful. She knows to be pleasant. She is generally a very uh, pleasant person. Uh, she knows to be careful um, and not, you know, be out um, alone in places where there aren't, she doesn't feel safe. We live in the DC metro area. It's a very diverse area. So, Maybe I don't feel it as much if I did live in a more rural neighborhood uh, or, or region, then I might have a different conversation here. There's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of Muslims. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not having maybe the same conversations that black parents have to have all across the country with their young um, young kids. Now, Robbie, I'm curious. Last week on the show in like the Slate Plus portion, we had a conversation about patriotism and how we talk to our kids about it. And you are one of the people that I really look at as you have a very um, distinct way of expressing patriotism. You posted a photo on the 4th of July of your baby wearing a onesie that was like an American flag. And you were like, we're American and we're not going anywhere. (laughs) But but you 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 use I think I've heard you identify as American um, so many times. I mean, I think it's something that's, you know, you're very comfortable, you know, talking about. The, you, you are American, and maybe it's because mm-hmm. I think that people look at p- people of uh, Pakistani uh, heritage and maybe assume that you're an immigrant. I don't know why that y- you do that. I'm just curious to know that that sort of sense of identity, that patriotism that you that you show online. That, that how do you talk about that with your kids? Are you instilling that kind of thinking with them? Like how do you how do you address that? Yeah, that is really really important to me, and I think it's one of the challenges that um, the parents of Muslim kids, and I, I think the parents of all. Um, all kinds of kids that come from communities that are kind of marginalized right now, there's immigrant, Latino, uh, LGBTQ. I mean, all of these, in all these situations, we have to create a real sense of belonging and ownership of this country in our kids. I mean, I, I talked about like my upbringing in this country where I felt very comfortable. Um, we grew up in these small towns. I never felt like an outsider. We were a bit of a curiosity, but I never felt like an outsider. I have this weird sense, like, you know, I'm obsessed with the Civil War in America, U.S. history, as if it's the history of my ancestors, which it's not, but, you know, it's an adopted history. Um, my dad worked for the U.S. government. I, um, I want my daughters to know that they have both a duty to this country and they have rights um, that are enshrined um, in the laws of this country. And there is absolutely... Uh, no reason for them to ever feel like they don't belong. And also that, you know, it's like your family. When you love your family and you care about your family, you are totally entitled. And I mean, when I say care, I mean, actually take care of your family. You're entitled to criticize them. You're entitled to fix things that are broken. And that's our responsibility to this country. That's how I view patriotism. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I think that you've hit on, this isn't really a question, but more of a comment, because this is what we're thinking about a lot these days. 
And I think you've hit on this question of ownership, which is really, I feel like at the core of what is happening is that there's a kind of a battle for ownership. And um, I think that what's happened in, what's publicly happened in America over the last however many years, and I say publicly because I feel like for many of us, it was already happening. It's just now it's sort of like been brought to the forefront. But what's one of the things about what's publicly happened is um, that it's questioned who is owner who has ownership over the notion of this country and uh there's there's a ba- there's a almost a branding battle <laughs> you know like and all the people i know are people like what you described robbie like that that i grew up in these places with these diverse people of diverse religions and my father converted to islam but he was raised as christian and his friends are jewish and my friends are hindi and like every, everyone just sort of and we all have we have shared cultural values and we have different family values but we all sort of hang out together and everyone skates together or cooks food together or listens to music together or raises kids together. And that's the America that we envision. And it's just so weird to suddenly be told, well, that's no, you're not a part of America right. anymore. And I, I, what I see is some people saying, well, fuck this country because it's never been good. And so I don't give a shit. And I see other people doing what you're doing, which is saying, actually, we ha- not only do we belong here, we have to stay here in order for this to work. Yeah, and also to honor honor the blood, sweat, and tears of so many generations have come before us who have been in much worse conditions. Yeah. Like, you know, us immigrants, like the wave of immigrants, my parents came um, to this country and like was the 70s. We came on the back of the civil rights movement. We came without having to battle the things that black Americans have had to, had to battle for decades. Um, so we already had rights established, mm. you know, so we, it, it would just be so cowardly um, <laughs> to say, well, we just can't deal with this. Uh, you know, we're all doctors and we got lots of money, but this kind of sucks that you're mean to us Uh it's no it's it's not um it's not bad enough and but i'll say this you know one thing um which might not have occurred to you or maybe it did and you didn't know what to ask you know on the identity issue, the American part of the identity is not the hard part. The hard part is the Muslim part of the identity. And that's because the other part of this conversation that I have to have with my girls is trying to explain what the hell is happening with all these, you know, the Middle East. So many terrible yeah. incidences of people who identify as Muslims and commit horrible, horrible acts of violence in the name of Islam. Um, that is actually much more challenging and difficult. Those conversations are harder. Because, you know, explaining geopolitics and uh, disenfranchisement and, and and, and I mean, these, those things are much more complicated to, and what scripture actually says versus what it means versus how it was practiced. Those are much harder conversations of how to, for them to instill um, and not reject their Muslim identity. Hmm. And, and you have to have that conversation with both a 20 year old and an eight year old. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Just a couple days ago, uh, about three or four days ago, uh, I had a conversation with them about, um, the, the prophet, right? So the prophet is Muhammad. Everybody knows that. And there's this big controversy about his wife, Aisha. And so this is something that people who are like anti-Muslim bigots, they throw at you all the time that, oh, he married a six-year-old girl. Okay. So this is like popular kind of propaganda. Now, the now I had a conversation with them because I want them to think about things. And I was like, you know, Muslim scholars say that she was either six, nine, 16, or 19. Like, there might be a one missing, and the ba- number might have been backwards. Like, we're not sure. We're talking about 1,500 years ago. So I was like, but you have to think about it like this. Like, in Islam, you're not allowed to marry anybody before puberty, right? And like, 1,500 years ago, a six- or nine-year-old girl was not hitting puberty. To this day, 
girls in countries that are less rich than America, they hit puberty in their teens. Like in Pakistan, girls hit puberty in their 15, 16 years, not, not like eight and nine, like in this country. I was like, how likely is it? On top of which, she went on to become like a scholar in, in Islam. I said, if she was like six years old, was that going to happen? And so we thought about, you know, so, but I know that they're going to get confused on these issues and they're going to start questioning the integrity of people in our scripture and believing the shit that people say. And I want them to think critically and be like, oh, that's bullshit. That's not what happened. Um, so these are the conversations. It was a roundabout conversation we had. And then my eight-year-old was like, what's puberty? Have I hit puberty? I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. Can of worms <laughs> opened, right? The, the sex part is, yeah, the sex part is hard. I still haven't really figured out how to deal with that. When I got pregnant and she was like, how did that, because sex ed is not offered in Islamic school. Um, but certainly not a third grade, but in general, they're like, that's your parents, um, job. You guys do it. So when I got pregnant, she's like, how did the baby get in your tummy? Like, did you eat the baby? I was like, shit, what do I say? So, that was complicated. Yes. yes. No, I didn't say yes, but she thought about it. She's smart. And she's like, are there baby seeds inside you? I'm like, yes, that's it. The baby seed. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> have, have you thought about what you would do if one of your daughters decided to reject the religion and make a change? Have you thought about how you would think about that? I mean, I, it's, uh, that is something that's not uncommon. I mean, like we're like any other community. Um, lots of people convert to Islam and lots of people leave Islam. And the way I've thought about that is I would still continue to love them. I would try to understand what's happening. And the worst thing you can do in a situation like that is to act horribly so that they're like, see, this proves why I don't want to be part of this community. Um, no, I haven't really considered that so far. They seem, um, they seem comfortable and happy and, um, you know, in, in being part of the community, especially because a lot of it, like so many other religions, it's like cultural stuff, right? Like festivals and the food. And the, so they haven't really gotten into the deep um, religious, spiritual stuff yet. Maybe when they do, they'll question things and then we'll see. I've got a non-religious uh, oriented question for you because we we're just talking about this before we connected with you. Um, you have a 20-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a baby. You travel all the time. You're always on airplanes taking red eyes. You know, you had a plane recently where the engine caught fire and you had to make an emergency landing. It was very dramatic uh, travel experience with <laughs> very, very taxing professional life. You have this baby. You have these two other kids. Uh, Carvel was just talking about how you max out and, like, you just can't do certain things. How are you doing? How are you? How are you get? How are you keeping it all together? Um, you know, I kind of thrive on having a lot to do. I mean, I I think it's a personality thing too, and it's not like I don't have. You know, I have there. You've seen me on Twitter. Um, I me constantly tweeting about the news is a decompression. I know that sounds weird. Um, it's in, it's uh anxiety causing for some people, but being engaged, like I find a community online. So being engaged with people, even though I work from home mostly, I do travel um, fairly frequently, but I don't separate out my work and my family. My family is part of my work. My work is part of my family. The kids come with me. Um, my daughters have attended hundreds of meetings with me over the course of 20 years, board meetings, uh, conferences. And to me, you know, when Sheryl Sandberg wrote that whole, the lean in thing, I mean, that's me leaning in. That's me saying, I'm going to be doing my job because I can, but my kids are important to my life. And it's not that I can't leave them. I can, I just don't want to, uh, and they're not going to disturb anything and I can perform just as well. So, um, you know, it's, it's day at a time and there are days when I'm like, screw it. I'm watching Netflix for four hours. Um, and then I'm okay. <laughs> I just, it's just, yeah, it's, it's one day at a time. 
and lots of shit does not get done. And I have learned a long time ago that not everything is ever going to get done as well as you want it. And that's okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, we were just talking about that. And I I guess just one thing I want to say, because I've been thinking a lot about this lately as a parent of my own, thinking about it with my, my kid's mom, thinking about it, hearing other parents is that, you know, the, uh, the amount of, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, if it's some combination of courage and work that it takes to do jobs and parent your kids, I just become more and more impressed with it every day. And I just want to call that out because I hear that in what you're yeah. talking about. People are working so hard in this country to to raise good families and be good people. And I feel like that gets missed sometimes. Yeah. And I see that in immigrant families. I see that in working class families. I see that in poor families. And I am continually impressed by how much love and care and effort and courage people put into trying to make things work out for their kids. And I, I just, the more I do this work and the more I, this work as a parent and this work now of talking about parenting, the more I just want to like acknowledge that. And like, for lack of a less West Coast word, I want to honor that. You know, I, um, I will say, I don't think there's, you know what, the more kids you have, the more efficient you get is what I realize. I mean, when, when you are juggling, you know, children and, and running a household and working and all the other things you got to do in life, um, you become incredibly efficient, incredibly streamlined. I have friends who are like single with no kids and they're like, how do you get so much done? I don't have time. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing with your time? I don't understand. I do not understand. I'm not kidding. I have, ki- I have friends who are like, who are like, I'm looking for a job. I'm like, get me your resume. You know, I'll put it out like the 10 people today. It'll take them three weeks to get me their resume. <laughs> like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> I, so I think parents, yeah. And the other thing is, um, I have to say this because I totally agree. I have been a parent in many different situations. My first marriage was abusive. I was a parent in that situation. I was a single mother struggling broke, um, you know, at times on, um, on government assistance. I was a parent in that situation. In every situation, I did the best I could. But my, my kids all had different kind of... Um, you know, there are different things that they got in their lives. Like, you know, my kids now can get all kinds of things that I couldn't give to my daughter when she, my oldest daughter, when she was little. But in every situation, I did my best. And I know my parents did my best, did their best. They couldn't give us a lot of things. And that's what it's about. I mean, there's no one right way to parent, helicopter, whatever. I mean, we're all doing the best we can. And um, I agree with you. It has to be honored. And I, and I really am uncomfortable with like the best way to parent type of, there's a million best ways to parent is what I believe. Amen. All right. Thank you so much for being with us, Rabia Choder. This has been uh, illuminating and, and super interesting. Oh, my gosh. I, we didn't even get a chance to talk. <laughs> but thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Barely. Thank you, guys. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Rabia. All right. Take care. All right. We have a call now from Anne. Hi. This is Anne, and this is for the mom and dad or fighting crew. Um, my daughter is seven years old, about to be eight, and she made a friend at the beginning of last school year who is a little bit problematic. Um, This friend has some emotional issues and has been going through some problems at home as well. And so the challenge that we're having is teaching our daughter to be a good friend, and yet this friend is not being a good friend to our daughter. She's being, um, sometimes she can be taciturn, to put it mildly. Other times she has been... Um, physically violent towards my daughter, 
and it's just sort of hard to navigate and hard to figure out how to advise our daughter, again, to be a good friend while recognizing that perhaps this is not the best friendship for her. I look forward to hearing your comments and any advice that you guys have. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. That's a rough one. Yeah, I mean, this is a... Uh... This is a tough one, and I I think you know we've we've been through this having kids in our kids' lives that we didn't think were the best, not just in terms of influence, but in terms of like the actual amount of emotional pain <laughs> that they brought to our kids' lives. You know, in that that lingering question of can we intervene and like either get this kid to act right, the second kid to act right, or just like like cut them off? You know, can we do that? And every single time we've sort of landed at no, you, we can't really do that. The most thing that I think that our role is as parents is to help our kids process what's happening. But I think it's a, I think personally, it's a little bit of overstepping to do anything beyond that. I think that kids have to understand how to process difficult relationships and how to understand how to end them and that ending them is is an option, but they have to make that decision on their own. So I don't know that a parent can say, yeah, I've determined this kid is bad for you. You can't ever see them again, unless there's a real kind of like, like actual physical danger or something like that. But if it's like the kid is in a little bit of a rough relationship, I think it's really important to have as many conversations as you can, where you listen to their feelings about it and you tell them some stories from your own life about people that you've interacted with that were like that and how you dealt with it. And you try to model for them like what proper, kind, caring interaction should be between two people. And you make it possible for them to to recognize that like if that's not happening, you know, you don't have to be in this relationship. You can make a decision about that. But I think all you can do is lay those things out, use this as a platform for that conversation. But I don't think you can do much more than that. Ultimately, we found that our kids have been really good at negotiating their difficult relationships. And they've either just stopped hanging out with kids that we thought were assholes or they figured out how to interact with them in a way that we didn't even think was possible to where the relationship now seems mutually beneficial some years down the road. Um, That's the one thing. The other question that remains is like, do you talk to the kid's parent about this? And... I'm not even going to give advice on that because there are so many factors. How How is the parent? What's your relationship like? Do you feel like you have that kind of consent in your relationship with them to bring this up? We know that parents get very defensive if you ever say anything bad about their kids. So that's a decision that you sort of have to make on your own. But I would say that that's another kind of option to not even to like, hey, I'm going to tell telling you that your kid is being shitty, but to kind of say, hey, there's this situation. How can we strategize together about you know, how we might deal with it. Yeah, I liked what you had to say a lot. Um, and I, I I agree that, that you know, managing relationships with difficult people, including people who are, are quite disturbed, um, that's, a, that's a part of life. And that's like a life skill that we all have to develop to some degree and, and that we have to help our kids develop as well. And, and you don't help them develop it by like doing it for them, by giving them imperatives and telling them, no, we're cutting off this person and so on. At the same time, it's a thing that many people and probably including many kids can get stuck in, right? Like we have all, I think, been stuck in relationships that we that, that we would have been better off just uh, extracting ourselves from. Um, and I certainly know I did that when I was a kid. Um, and And 
it's one of those sort of impossibly tough judgment calls. Like if you see your kids stuck in a relationship like that, how long do you like let them stay in it and give them support and let them know what their options are, but also see them in this sort of agonizing situation that can be very, very consuming and, and painful. Um, and that's a really difficult one and there's no easy answer. But I, I, it's certainly right what Carvel says that like just coming in and swooping down and trying to rescue them from it, um, except in extreme circumstances of real danger, uh, is probably not going uh, to help the situation in the long run. It is difficult, especially because her child is, you know, she's eight, so she's in elementary school now. But as you get into the upper elementary grades and then into middle school, having those relationships can actually take a toll on you in terms of your other circles and your other relationships that are so important to develop and nurture in that period of time when you're going through that, you know, kids are going through that phase of change where they're sort of, you know, finding um there's a lot of pecking order, horrible stuff going on, and they're trying to really be who they are and, and be comfortable in their own skin in the midst of it, which is already really hard. I actually kind of have a red flag here with the physical violence part. That makes me uncomfortable. Um, I think what I would have done in a similar situation when my kids were this young is have like pretty much a transparent conversation, kind of like the question she posed to us, you know, using appropriate language that you know, let's talk about how it's supposed to feel when you have a relationship. You know, friends are supposed to make you feel good about who you are when you're with them. Friends are supposed to be kind to you. Friends are supposed to support you. Um, friends are supposed to be people that you want to be like and that you want to help. And and I would also try to encourage really expanding her friend group. I I I don't. She didn't say whether or not this was the case, but sometimes when kids have relationships like this, they become very sort of dependent friend relationships, and and a lot of other kids aren't included in the group. And I think having more friends really helps kids sort through, you know, desirable friend qualities and undesirable friend qualities. So I would say expand the circle, but I wouldn't. I'm 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 more comfortable saying. Uh, take maybe behind the scenes proactive steps to do a little social engineering and, and inviting other kids over and so forth because of the physical violence stuff. I don't know what she meant by that, if it's just hair pulling or if it's something else, but that makes me, I I understand why she's uncomfortable with that. And, and that's where I would start to maybe be more proactive than I would otherwise be. Yeah. How do you expand your eight-year-old's friend circle, though? I totally agree. And uh, you see this with little kids that, like, if you can distract them from the thing they're upset about with another thing, that's always the best possible solution. Um, how do you, when these kids are hanging out all day at school without you being there, how do you get her to make more different uh, friends who are not in, uh, et cetera? I, I used to ask, you know, when Teddy was younger and he was going through his, like, justice issue phase and he had just a couple of friends and I I knew he had a broader friend circle at school that I, we were just never seeing. Um, I asked his teachers, you know, who does he hang out with? Who, who do you think is a good, you know, is a good match? And uh, who, who does he get? Or I would ask him, like, who's at your lunch table every day? Who do you talk to? And then sometimes it does take actually reaching out to another parent and arranging, you know, get, get together. I mean, seven is not too old. Almost eight is not too old to call another parent and say, hey, I think we should get our, our kids together. We're going to go to the park today. Do you want us to pick him or her up along the way? I yeah. mean, to some extent with Teddy, who's 14, yeah. I still sometimes coordinate with the parents <laughs> to get him the hell out of the house to do yeah. stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's. I mean, I think that's right. I think I think that's true. That like both of our kids had variations of this issue at this age, right? Like our daughter had this friend who it was every time there was just so so much drama between them, and it was like to the point where the whole school knew that that was what these two kids' relationship was was like screaming and crying and broken hearts and anger and sleepovers would go, always go sideways because and. Uh, we tried so many different ways to intervene in that. And I don't know what it was. It was just their chemistry together because we loved the family. The family loved us. They had a sister. There's, they were twins, a set of twins. The other sister, it was always smooth. Everything was always good. Just these two, my daughter and this girl, their relationship was always complex and fraught. And uh, for whatever reason now, at age 11, both those kids in middle school, not in the same school, which I think is good, their relationship works really well. My son had similar issues. He was much, he had a much more difficult time being a part of anything. Um, He felt like kids made fun of him. He also was a little bit, didn't, thought he was better than every other kid. So it was like this kind of combination. So we did go to his teachers and we did say, who does Ezra hang out with? Like, who do you think might be a good match? And I'm just going to say, I think it's a working strategy. You can do that. And also when I look back on it, every single social engineering intervention we engaged in with our kids None of them ever amounted to anything. Like the kids that we would pick up and take to the park and be like, cool, Ezra's going to hang out with this kid. It's going to be awesome. They didn't like each other or they didn't hang out or they actually ended up low-key hating each other. And then tell Ezra telling me years later, yeah, I fucking hated that kid. And we used to always like just glower at each other. In the, in the Like kids will do what they're going to do. And I, I think like the more that I, the more the older my kids have gotten, the more I've come to just understand that. So I still advocate that like the main role of a parent is to, is to provide context for what they're feeling and experiencing because they have a lot of shit coming at them and they don't know what to make of it. And part of my job, I think is to just be like, huh, you know, when you have these feelings, it might mean this. And when people, when you're having this experience, this is one of the things I've learned it means over time. And here's one of the things you might do about it. But in the actual doing of it, it's like, you can't even make them do it. They have to do it on their own. All right. Thanks for the call. And, uh, give us a call back and let us know how it goes. Time for recommendations. Rebecca, what do you recommend? I'd like to recommend this amazing video being passed around social media right now under the headline, That Time Donnie and Marie Botched Steely Dan. Uh, This is a classic 1970s show open of the Donnie and Marie show in which Donnie and Marie sing an incredibly earnest version of Steely Dan's Reeling in the Years. This video has everything. It has singing and dancing ice skating troupe. It has a Donnie and Marie super corny comedy bit. And it has a reprise of the really awful version of Steely Dan's Reeling in the Years. And the reason it is great to watch with your kids is because it opens up a whole world of conversation about who the hell were Donnie and Marie, what the hell was going on in the 70s, what's up with dancing, singing ice skaters. And it gives them the opportunity to learn that we used to actually watch this crap. Not only did we watch it, but we had to make an appointment to watch it. The TV had to be on at a certain time because there was no such thing as a DVR and there were only three channels. So this video is a really fun way to illustrate the the caveman-like world of media that we all grew up in. And I would recommend watching it with your kids and um, enduring the amazingly awful version of Steely Dan's Reeling in the Years as sung by Donnie and Marie. All right. We'll put that on our show page and on our Facebook page. 
Um, I'm going to recommend something that needs no recommendation from me or anyone else, Coney Island, the great uh, East Coast amusement park <laughs> where we went this weekend. But uh, more specifically, if you get a chance to go to Coney Island with your kids, um, we uh, there is a roller coaster there called the Steeplechase. Now, last year when we went to Coney Island, uh, Eliza went on the little kitty roller coaster called the Sea Serpent, which is quite dramatic for a little kid roller coaster. Like, it, it's bigger than the it's it, it, it's it's a lot more exciting than just going around in a circle on the fire trucks. And she really liked it. She was very excited by it. And she asked me if she could go on a bigger roller coaster. And so I looked around and we found the Steeplechase, and she cleared the height limit. You know, you must be this tall to go on this ride. She cleared it by less than one inch. But the, you know, that's all it takes. And we stood there in the line and I was a little nervous because like there are grownups on this ride. Like this is not a tiny ride. And um, we stood there in the line and, and she started looking scared and she said, I'm not sure I want to do this. And I said, it's totally up to you. We can do it or not do it. And she said, no, I want to do it. And she got that sort of serious, brave look on her face. And we waited for the front and we got to the front. And I was worried when we got on because like, what if she like really hates it? That could make this really good day into a bad day. Um, but we got on and it takes you, you know, up to the top. We go slowly up to the top and I'm looking at her next to me. She's nervous. And then it starts going very fast. The first drop is extremely fast. And she had a look on her face like, oh, I am really not sure about this. Like I may well have made a terrible, terrible mistake. And then we go around a bunch of times and it shakes us up and you go up and down and to the side and it's amazing. And I'm looking at her and she's like holding on and, and her eyes are wide and, and she's sort of white knuckling it. And then we get to the end and we stop. And I was trying the whole time to be like, whoa, this is fun. Whoa, God, this is so exciting to try to make sure like she knows that like this is fun, but I can't tell if that's working or not. And we get to the end and the thing stops and she looks up and she says, that was terrifying and amazing. <laughs> and and I was like, oh, this is so great. She and I are going to go on a different roller coaster every summer for the rest of our lives. It's awesome. Yes. Excellent. Um, the, uh, this week I'm going to recommend uh, Glee, the television show Glee, which I have a lot of feelings about some of them. It, it, this is obviously for older kids. Glee loves to bring up topics that just stress parents out. There's teenage pregnancy. There's all kinds of sex. There's drugs. There's so on and so forth. So you have to feel comfortable at least having those topics come up with your kids. But one of the great things is that it um, the kids loved that show. It became a way into all those topics in a weird way. And I thought the show dealt with them relatively well. Like I wasn't like, you like, I mean, I felt that the way that they were dressed was pretty much in line with our collective values, but more importantly, the music. I found myself, I found my kids singing songs from my childhood, note for note, word for word. And it was just so amazing. And just being able to bond with your kids over music. So this is something in the vein of the Donnie and Marie thing, but just having your kids singing songs and loving songs that are from like your childhood. It's just such an amazing bonding experience. So Glee is a lot. It's a little dramatic. It's a little silly. It's a little over the top. But if you have older kids that are just into soap opera storytelling and you feel like you can sit down with them and go through that with them, I recommend Glee. All right. That's our show. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Benjamin Frisch. If you have a question you'd like us to tackle, call 424-255-7833. Visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Fighting. For Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoie, I'm Gabriel Roth, and we'll be back next week. 